The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. Their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash obscura. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. New York City in the 1980s was not the place we know it to be today, especially when it comes to violent crime. According to some reports, during the 10-year period from 1980 to 1990, there was an average of up to 2,000 murders per year. Almost no neighborhood was without risks, and no one was off-limit. The blackout riots of 1977 were still fresh in many New Yorkers' minds, The city was densely populated, with millions of people living and working in such a confined space. Commuting to and around Manhattan via the dirty, dangerous, and heavily graffitied subway system was the only choice available to most residents. 3.3 million of whom relied on the subway every day. These days on the subway, 
Transit officers have a reassuring presence. They ensure things are running smoothly and that any disturbances are dealt with swiftly. But in the 1980s, the city couldn't afford to employ such security on the subway. City Mayor Ed Koch openly dismissed the idea that New Yorkers were fearful of the subway. And even being on the street after dark in some neighborhoods. But many citizens felt scared. They resented it. But there was little else they could do. It was just part of living in New York. The NYPD already had their work cut out for them in terms of responding to an overwhelming amount of emergency calls daily where someone had been violently assaulted or murdered. This led to the founding in 1979 of volunteer patrol group, the Guardian Angels. They wore distinctive red berets and provided a visible presence in riding on the subways. Based in the Bronx, they believed in self-defense and would physically intervene if necessary. Making citizens arrest to keep people safe but they weren't law enforcement, and as such, were open to prosecution themselves in the event that things turned ugly. NYPD was no fan of the Guardian Angels, but there was little else they could do. However, it wouldn't be long before the widespread discontent about the amount of violent street crime in the Big Apple was about to be exposed. In most brutal and racially charged circumstances, four young African-American men and their white assailant were unwittingly about to be the public faces of the Wild West that many New Yorkers felt their city had become. Now, let's get on with it. Daryl Cabey was born on August 26, 1965. One of six children, he lived with his family in the borough of Queens until his father died in 1973 after being crushed by a car when Daryl was only eight years old. Now a widow, his mother Shirley moved the family to the Claremont Village Public Housing Project in the South Bronx. It was a rough and dangerous neighborhood where street crime, drugs, and violence were everyday occurrences. According to the New York Times, Daryl had a learning disability and dropped out of high school in his junior year, but he enjoyed going to the movies and took pride in his appearance. In December 1984, the 19-year-old was awaiting trial for robbery he'd committed two months before. He pleaded not guilty and was released on $2,000 bail. Troy Canty was born on September 9, 1965, and he too lived in Claremont Village with his parents, Eddie, Eula, and four siblings. In 1977, Troy was suspended from school for beating up a teacher. Troy eventually dropped out, having completed only the ninth grade. Since turning 16 years old, he'd racked up four arrests between 1982 and 1983 for possession of stolen property, petty larceny, and criminal mischief. He supported himself by robbing machines at video game arcades and completed a 60-day stint in jail for misdemeanors. He started using drugs in his early teens, mostly crack. In early December 1984, 19-year-old Troy received a conditional discharge from jail for staying in a drug rehab program. Barry Allen was born on January 10, 1966, 
and lived with his mother Mary and four younger siblings in the Claremont Village Project. Mary was a single mother and worked as a switchboard operator to support her family. Barry never knew his father, and while still only a teenager, became a father himself when his former girlfriend gave birth to their son around 1982. According to the Washington Post, Barry came into contact with the criminal justice system in his mid-teens. He served two brief sentences in 1982 and 1983 for attempted assault and theft. In November 1984, Barry dropped out of the ninth grade. Mike Troy, by this stage, Barry was already breaking into video game machines to steal money to support a cocaine addiction. The following month, the 18-year-old found himself on probation for theft, but he violated his condition and was due to face court in January 1986. James Ramser was born on August 15, 1966, in Hickory, North Carolina. One of five children to his parents, James Sr. and Bessie. By early 1980s, the family had relocated to New York City and were living in the Claremont Village Project. Despite only being 18 years old, James had been arrested on four occasions since 1982 for petty larceny and criminal trespass. In 1983, he received two 60-day sentences for criminal mischief and shoplifting. He supported himself by selling stolen goods, and by late 1984, there were four warrants out for his arrest for fair evasion, possession of marijuana, and smoking it in the subway. Like many of their peers from the projects, these four young men were said to be no strangers to jumping unsuspecting people on the subway. The group was known to regularly catch the number two 7th Avenue train from the Bronx into Manhattan to Panhandle. It was an additional way to earn money while on the way into town to steal from video game arcades where the young men used sharpened screwdrivers to break into the coin machines. It wasn't uncommon. It was just part of the daily routine for New Yorkers who caught the subway. On December 22, 1984, Troy Canty and Barry Allen met up in their local neighborhood. The pair decided to go into Manhattan to break into coin machines at video game arcades to steal quarters. They bumped into James Ramser, and then Daryl Cabey, who decided to join Troy and Barry. At around 1 p.m., the group caught a bus to 149th Street in the Bronx. Jumping the turnstile at the station to avoid paying fares, they boarded the number two IRT southbound express train. James and Daryl carried concealed sharpened screwdrivers in the pockets of their jackets. The group was riding into the rear of the seventh car of the 10-car train, by the time the train reached the 14th Street Station in Lower Manhattan, there were around 20 passengers in the same carriage as the four young men. When the train stopped and the doors opened, Troy noticed a man board the train and sit towards the rear section of the car where the young men were situated. He was thin, neatly dressed in a gray sweater and blue jacket, had short hair, wore glasses, and appeared to be in his late 30s. All up, he looked kind of nerdy. He sat down opposite Troy, who was seated to the right of Barry. James and Daryl were sitting to the man's right side. The train pulled out of the station and headed towards Chambers Street. None of the group had any money, 
So Troy decided to approach the slender, unassuming-looking man with dark brown hair. Troy calmly asked the man for $5. He later claimed the group had no intention to rob the man or threaten him with their screwdrivers, just asked him for money without making any threats. The man asked Troy to repeat what he'd said, and he again asked for money. The man stood up and reached into his waistband, but he didn't pull out his wallet. Instead, it was a gun. The man fired five shots in rapid succession from left to right. The first shot hit Troy in the chest. The second struck Barry in the upper back as he turned to escape. The third tore through James's arm and lodged into his left side. Daryl was the last to be targeted. He'd been standing in the corner of the subway car, holding on to an overhead hand strap and averting his gaze. The fourth shot missed Daryl, deflecting instead off the wall of the conductor's cab. But the fifth shot entered the rear of Daryl's side and severed his spinal cord. When the shooting broke out, other passengers in the car instinctively hit the floor. The conductor who had been in the next car heard the shots and slammed on the brakes just before Chambers Street, not far from City Hall. He instructed the motorman to radio for emergency assistance. Most of the passengers made a hurried escape. The conductor made his way to the car where the shots had come from. It was carnage. Daryl, Troy, James, and Barry lay slumped on the floor or against a wall. Two terrified female passengers also lay on the floor, frozen with fear and unable to move. The gunman approached the woman and asked them if they were okay. The conductor approached the gunman and asked if he was a cop. The man, who was seated quietly by the sage, replied he wasn't and said he didn't know why he shot the young men. But that quote, they tried to rip me off. The conductor asked the man to surrender his firearm, but was met with refusal. First responders arrived at the scene, and all four young men were conveyed to the hospital. But when police arrived, there was no sign of the thin, white, bespectacled man. As the conductor had been aiding the four young men, the older man had headed towards the front of the car. He jumped onto the tracks between the two subway cars and fled into the darkened tunnel. With no further concerns for the lives of the four young African-American men, he just shot. Daryl and Barry were both in critical condition, while James and Troy were in serious condition. At the hospital, according to Daryl's mother, Shirley, Daryl said he was sitting across from the man in the subway car and hadn't even spoken to him when he was suddenly shot without warning. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As we navigate the complex narratives of true crime, it's clear that life's stressors, both big and small, can accumulate, affecting our daily lives and mental health. It's important to have a space to voice these concerns, to unravel the personal mysteries we carry within us. Therapy offers a safe space to do just that. It's not only for moments of crisis, but for anyone aiming to foster better coping skills, set healthy boundaries, and ultimately, thrive. BetterHelp facilitates this by providing online therapy that's tailored to your schedule, making it both convenient and flexible. With BetterHelp, 
Starting therapy is straightforward. Fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. If you find your needs aren't being met, you can switch therapist at any time without any additional charges, ensuring you find the right fit for your journey. If you've been considering therapy or curious about how it can help, give BetterHelp a try. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Obscura today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Obscura. Take a moment to support your mental health. As the manhunt got underway, police set to work putting up wanted posters. In subway stations across New York City, posters bearing a composite sketch of the gunman, based on witness accounts, were plastered everywhere. Police boarded trains and handed out copies of the sketch to passengers, and a hotline was established for the public to call in and leave tips. In the days immediately following the shooting, almost 1,000 NYPD officers were patrolling the city's subway system. Meanwhile, the press had dubbed the mystery shooter the Subway Vigilante. The media hype around the missing gunman was intense. People were contacting the police not to provide assistance, but to express their support for the man for taking the law into his own hands. Thousands of New Yorkers, both white and black, felt vindicated and empowered. The only thing that surprised many was it had taken so long for someone to fight back in response to being accosted on the subway. Police used the media to appeal to the man to come forward and turn himself in. Theories abounded as to the shooter's identity. Comparisons with the popular Charles Bronson film, Death Wish, were immediate. Life, it seemed, was imitating art. But the pervasive and racially-based narrative that young male African Americans were out to victimize white New Yorkers and were therefore to be feared, continued to be perpetuated. Prominent civil rights activist, the Reverend Al Sharpton, told PIX 11 News, quote, It makes black young people the sitting ducks of white paranoia. But were the man's polarizing actions proportionate? Like many New Yorkers, Mayor Kosh didn't think so. He openly criticized the shooting, labeling the gunman's actions animal behavior, saying, quote, A vigilante is not a hero. Media outlets like Channel 7's Eyewitness News took to the subway to gauge the public's reaction. It was clear that the man's actions resonated profoundly with many New Yorkers who wholeheartedly supported him. They were sick of feeling anxious and fearful every day. And as far as they were concerned, if someone was being mugged, then they were perfectly entitled to defend themselves, even if it meant drawing a firearm and shooting the alleged attackers. Citizens who were sick of feeling vulnerable didn't see anything wrong with justifying and legitimizing vigilanteism. I think he did right. By shooting these guys. Sure, they tried to mug him. I think he was, you know, protecting himself. This is around the Christmas holiday. You got to look out for yourself. I think he did right. I really do. Because uh, somebody's got to do something and the police aren't always there. The Guardian Angels appealed to Mayor Kosh to grant the gunman a temporary amnesty to come forward. But the Angels recognized the four young men in the news footage. 
Troy, James, Daryl, and Barry already had a reputation that preceded them. Despite the anger directed towards the young men, Daryl's mother, Shirley, didn't believe that her son would have attempted to mug anyone. James's father, James Sr., echoed this sentiment when he spoke to Channel 7 Eyewitness News. One of his friends asked this man for the time. The time of day. The time of day. Yeah. And the man started shooting. The next thing he knew, he was in the hospital. He don't know nothing else. He tells me he got shot for nothing. It appeared as though the new year may come and go with no further answers. Then at 12.10 p.m. on New Year's Eve, a 37-year-old electronics technician walked into a police station in Concord in the neighboring state of New Hampshire. The man standing at the counter nervously told the officers on duty, quote, I am the person they are seeking in New York. You could have forgiven the officers for doing a double take. Was the man standing in front of them, the crazed vigilante, who had brazenly shot four young men on public transport in the middle of the day during one of the busiest times of the year? Concord police contacted the NYPD, who immediately got on the road. Concord police proceeded to question the man for the next two hours. In his rambling, audio-taped interview, he told investigators that he used hollow-point bullets to inflict damage on the young men he shot in the subway. Three days before Christmas, explaining, quote, you need maximum stopping power. When NYPD detectives and the Manhattan assistant DA arrived in Concord, the man repeated his shocking confession again that same night. But who was he? Bernard Getz, known to his family and friends as Bernie, was born on November 7, 1947, in Queens. He was the youngest of four children, born to his German immigrant parents, Bernard Sr. and Gertrude. Bernard Sr. ran a 300-acre dairy farm and bookbinding business just outside the town of Rhinebeck in upstate New York, where Bernie spent his childhood with his family. Bernie and his brothers loved playing cowboys, similar to his television heroes, The Lone Ranger and Hopalong Cassidy. In 1960, 12-year-old Bernie's parents sent him and his sister to boarding school in Switzerland in order to avoid the spotlight of a family scandal. According to Time magazine, Bernard Sr. had been convicted of molesting two 15-year-old boys and later pleaded not guilty in return for a lesser charge of disorderly conduct. Five years later, Bernie returned to the States to attend college. He enrolled in an electrical engineering and nuclear engineering degree at NYU. Graduating in 1969, while Bernie was at college, the rest of his family had moved south to Orlando, Florida. After briefly working for Westinghouse, Bernie, too, moved to Orlando and got a job with his father, working in the family's residential development business. According to the Chicago Tribune, Bernie married in 1971. However, the marriage didn't last long and ended in divorce in 1975. Feeling the pull of his hometown, Bernie moved back to New York City. He started an electronics repair business, which he ran from home. Two years later, 
he moved to an apartment on West 14th Street near Greenwich Village. He became actively involved in efforts to clean up his local neighborhood in terms of crime and drugs. According to the New York Times, he organized petition drives to improve police protection on the block where he lived, between 5th and 6th Avenues. One day, in January 1981, 34-year-old Bernie had caught the subway. He was carrying with him around $1,000 worth of electrical equipment for work at the time. He was at the Canal Street station in broad daylight when he was suddenly set upon by three African-American youths. His assailants flung him into a plate glass door and beat him as he lay on the ground. Bernie sustained permanent damage to his knee, tore cartilage in his ribcage, and his jacket was ripped. Two of the attackers escaped, but one was arrested. To add insult to injury, the youth was only charged with criminal mischief for ripping Bernie's clothing. The young man spent less time in the police station than Bernie did filing the report. He later said of the 1981 attack, quote, They deliberately went after my knee, and they got it. I got kicked in the knee. And then what hurts you? They didn't have weapons. You don't have to be maimed with a weapon. What really hurts you is the sidewalk. So listen, if someone kills me, I don't care. But I don't want to be maimed. I don't want to be beaten. Bernie had reached his limit. Following the attack, he applied to the NYPD for a concealed carry firearm permit, which involved him outlaying around $2,000 for the relevant paperwork and background checks to be conducted. In his application, he explained that his job required him to carry large amounts of cash and valuable equipment on his person in public. However, in 1982, his application was rejected on grounds of insufficient need. On a subsequent trip to visit his family, Bernie purchased a 38 Smith & Wesson, which was perfectly legal, but it wasn't legal to have the firearm in New York, where a carry license was granted only in exceptional circumstances. Bernie regularly carried the gun in his waistband when he went out in public. It made him feel safe. On December 22, 1984, Bernie left his apartment. He'd been working on an electronics project that day, but was getting frustrated with it and needed a break. He headed out to meet up with some friends downtown for pre-holiday drinks. In a waistband holster, he carried his pistol. Fully loaded with five rounds of hollow-point bullets, he made his way to the 14th Street subway station boarded the car which he thought was relatively empty, and the rest was history. Immediately following the shooting, Bernie escaped south via the subway tunnel and surfaced at the Chamber Street subway station. He hailed a cab and got out at 15th Street, then walked back to his apartment. He packed a bag, rented a blue AMC Eagle from a rental company on East 12th Street, and drove three and a half hours to Bennington, Vermont. There, he checked into a motel under a pseudonym, then drove to the outskirts of town. He dismantled the revolver and scattered the numerous parts in the woods. He also burned the jacket he'd been wearing at the time of the shooting. Surely, he thought, things would come down and blow over after a few days. 
He assumed that as far as the police and media were concerned, it would become just another random mugging gone wrong. And the story would end up buried in the middle of the newspapers. The book Quiet Rage by psychologist and author Lillian Rubin documents how Bernie left Vermont on Christmas Eve for New Hampshire, where he stayed the next two nights. He used false names and paid in cash wherever he stayed. Among the many calls flooding into the NYPD hotline on December 26th, an anonymous tip came in. The caller providing Bernie's name and address. Police called around to his apartment building and left their details with a neighbor for him to contact them. But for whatever reason, no further action was taken on the tip and it fell through the cracks. Three days later, Barry called one of his neighbors, Myra Friedman. Myra Friedman didn't know Bernie well and had no idea why he was calling her. Myra was a reporter, and as the pair spoke, unbeknownst to Bernie, she instinctively hit the record button on her portable recorder to document the conversation. Myra told Bernie that police had visited the building and wanted to speak with him. Amongst his rambling, Bernie referred to the men he shot, telling Myra, Those guys, I'm almost sure, are vicious, savage people. What I did, I responded in a vicious and savage way. Bernie returned to New York on December 30th, where he gave two of his guns to Myra for safekeeping. He also returned the rental car and picked up some clothes and documents from his apartment. Bernie left again, rented a gray 1984 Chevrolet Caprice from the same rental company, and took off back to New Hampshire. After driving back to New England, he decided to hand himself in. NYPD detectives and the Manhattan assistant DA traveled to Concord to interview Bernie on the night of December 31st. Bernie was charged with four counts of second-degree attempted murder and unlawful possession of a weapon. During his interview, Bernie explained what happened and was adamant that he wasn't going to fight the charges. His two lengthy statements were video recorded. Bernie told investigators that even before the day of the shooting, his gun had the desired effect. On two occasions between 1981 and 1984, he'd successfully warded off assailants simply by displaying the firearm. When it came to describing in detail what happened on the day of the shooting, Bernie explained that the first time he saw the young men was when Troy Canty, who was positioned across from him in the subway car, asked, How are you? To which Bernie replied, Fine. Troy and Barry Allen walked over to Bernie and stood on his left, while James Ramser and Daryl Cabey had also stood up and were on Bernie's right. Troy said, Give me five dollars. Bernie elaborated that even though he was fairly certain that none of the group had a weapon, his previous experience made him fearful. He feared that the group would rob him and, quote, beat me up to a pulp. He told police that as he reached into his jacket, he mentally plotted out a, quote, pattern of fire to take down each of the group. After opening fire on the young men, Bernie told police he briefly turned back to Troy and Barry. Seeing that they'd both been shot, he spun back to check on James and Daryl, who by now was sitting on an end bench of the car and appeared unheard. 
Bernie's recollection was that he'd shot Daryl twice, once on the fourth shot, then approaching Daryl as he lay on the ground, shooting him again, with a fifth shot. Bernie denied that the shooting was premeditated, but said, quote, My intention was to murder them, to hurt them, to make them suffer as much as possible. Tune in to the next episode for a conclusion. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.